0: Yahweh okay let's turn to Genesis chapter 14 you know the Bible teaches that we're to search the scriptures be diligent in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 the Bible said that the Bereans were more noble than those of Thessalonica because they examined the scriptures daily to see if the things that the apostle Paul said were so and if they could examine what the apostle Paul said and see if it lined up with what the scriptures were teaching, then you could definitely examine what I say. Because I'm definitely far from a uh from the apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament as a matter of fact. You know, we learned last week that there's nothing in the Bible that teaches tithing on money, whether it be silver or Federal Reserve notes. Tithing was commanded on produce or livestock Now, the Israelites, they did give money and other things at other times. That's definitely provable. And they were commanded to give certain amounts of money at certain times, and we read those scriptures last week. They were commanded to give a half shekel one time. I believe it was in Exodus or Leviticus chapter 30. So they had money, a lot of it, but they were never commanded to give a tenth of their money or their wages. And we're going to go to Genesis 14, and we're going to talk about Abraham's tithe first. Then we're going to talk about Jacob's tithe, and then we're going to talk about the relationship between the Levitical priesthood and the tithe and the new covenant that we're under now. Genesis 14, verse 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shamaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zor. All these were joined together in the vale of Sidon, which is the salt sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him, and smote Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and Zuzim in Ham, and the Emams in Shavah, Kiriathim and the Horites in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, the, the same as Zor, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Sidon. So we're getting a picture here of a war. Verse 9, with Chedorlaomer the king of Elam, and with Tidal the king of the nations, and Amraphel king of Shinar, and Arioch king of Eleazar, four kings with five. And the vale of Sidon was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their victuals, and went their way. Now, that was a lot of hard reading there, but I wanted to get the, the backdrop or the background. Here, King Chedorlaomer and company waged war on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, with cities where homosexuality was rampant. Upon their victory, that is, King Chedorlaomer's victory, verse 11 states that all the goods and, I, and all the victuals of Sodom and Gomorrah were taken as a spoil of war. And you know that many times in the Bible, when they would battle between nations, the nation that was victorious would take the goods as spoils or as plunder, as we'd say. And that's time and time again in the Bible. Verse 12 says And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And so not only did they take the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and the victuals, but they also took Lot and, and Lot's goods, and they left. Verse 13, And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anir. And these were confederate with Abram. Now this verse tells us that there was somebody that escaped from the battle and ran and told Abram the Hebrew. And the man which brought the news, the Bible said he was confederate with Abram, which means he was Abram's ally. He was on his side. So he's coming, he's telling them, "Say, look, this is what has happened. Sodom and Gomorrah's goods have been taken, but I'll tell you something even worse. Your nephew, Lot, they took him. They kidnapped him. What does Abraham do? Verse 14, And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, And smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. And so Abram hears what's going on. He takes 318 servants of his. He's a very rich man if he had 318 servants. They were trained. They went. They divided themselves up. They came upon Chedorlaomer and company by night. They got back all those spoils that had been taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. They got back Lot. They got back the women. They got back the people. They got back Lot's goods. They got it all back. Abraham rescued it all. Verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return. And so, see, the king of Sodom would be very thankful because all that was taken from him was going to be brought back to him. Okay? Because he was the one that lost the battle, the king of Sodom let's keep reading, from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. Verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High Ale. And he blessed him, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High Ale, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High Ale, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Now, according to this, Melchizedek comes out. He blesses Abram for his actions. And then he blesses Yahweh, which had given the enemies into Abram's hand. Now, the Bible then says that he gave him tithes or tenths of all. Who gave the tenth? It was Abram that gave. Melchizedek the tenth. wasn't Melchizedek that gave Abram the tenth, but Abram gave Melchizedek the tenth. And what did he give him? He gave him a tenth of all that he had rescued back that was the spoils of war. Let's turn over. Let's keep our finger there and turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. I would like to read these at this point in the message because they sort of commentate on Genesis 14. Hebrews 7, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 4. The Bible says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High Elohim, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, that is Melchizedek. That means Mel, uh, Melch is a form of king, Zedek a form of righteousness. And then it says, um, And after that also king of Salem, or Shalom, which is King of Peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of Elohim, abideth a priest continually. And that's a, that verse is of another subject, but going to verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, speaking of Melchizedek, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tent of the spoils. And so we see here in Hebrews 7 that it shows that it was definitely Abram. That gave the tenth of the tithes to Melchizedek, and that the tithes were of the spoils of war that Abram had gotten back. Turning back to Genesis fourteen, we're going to pick it up at verse twenty-one. Verse twenty-one says, "And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons, and take the goods to thyself." And so he's so thankful that he's just saying he wants his people, but Abram can keep all the goods, all the spoils, because you know he went and got them himself. Verse 22, And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto Yahweh, the Most High El, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portions. And so Abraham had made a vow to Yahweh that he wouldn't take anything that he had gotten, He was going to go ahead and give it all back to Sodom, but he did give a tenth unto Melchizedek. The only thing that he would take is what the young men that went with him had already eaten and certain men's portions. The question is here in this passage concerning what we've been talking about is that was this a requirement of of Abram or of Abraham? Obviously, his name was Abram before it became Abraham. Did Abraham have to give a tenth to Melchizedek? Why did Abraham tithe? Where did Abraham learn to tithe? And let's examine some of these. Number one, you know, we could assume that Abram was doing his normal practice of tithing, but, you know, there's really nothing in the Bible that says that. That would just be our assumption if we if we said that. We should rather perform what what's known as exegesis, which means to extract the meaning of a text out of the text. Don't add anything into it, but take what's written and extract it out. Go by what's written. And when we read the passage for what it says it causes us to understand that Abram was doing this because of his victory. He was thankful for the victory which Yahweh had caused him to have. And so when he got back, he decided, hey, I'm going to give tithes of all these spoils to Melchizedek. You know, there was no increase here at all, even though the word increase in relation to tithes has the meaning of produce, technically. But if we think of increase how it means in English, there was nothing that Abram increased on this. It was spoils of war. He didn't do anything to earn the wages or earn what he had gotten, but it was spoiled, so it definitely was not akin totally to the tithe that went to the Levites under the Old Covenant. There was no wages earned, but only spoils of war, and this is the only instance mentioned in the Bible of Abram tithing. It's specified here in Genesis 14 and in Hebrews 7. Now, when we examine the fact that there were indeed laws of Yahweh that existed before Mount Sinai, and that's very, very easily to verify, is that laws of Yahweh were in existence before Mount Sinai or before the Old Covenant was established in Exodus chapter 19. But when we look at that, we find there, that there is a relationship between laws mentioned in Genesis and laws mentioned in Exodus. For instance, Abel gave the firstling of his flock in Genesis 4 verse 4, and the law of Moses commands firstlings of the flock to be given. In Exodus 13, 12 through 13. Capital punishment for murder is mandated in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. The law of Moses commands capital punishment for murder in Exodus 21, 12 through 14. So we see the relationship here between the patriarchal period and the Mosaic period. Number three, circumcision was on the eighth day in Genesis 17, 10 through 11. The law of Moses commands circumcision in Leviticus 12, 1 through 3. Then we go to Genesis 14 and we find that Abraham tithed on the spoils of war in Genesis 14, 1 through 20. But we go to the law of Moses and we find that the law of Moses does not command a tithe on the spoils of war. And so we see that although there is a relationship here between laws of the patriarchal period, the Mosaic period, there is not one with the tithe of Genesis 14 and the tithe of Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 14, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 12. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 31 and let's see exactly what Yahweh says about spoils of war because it wouldn't do me any good to just assume something but rather go to the Bible and see what the Bible says about spoils of war. How are they to be handed out? How are they to be given? Numbers 31 will tell us. In Numbers 31, 1 through 4, it shows that the children of Israel were going to wage war with the Midianites Because of the matter of Baal Peor, which took place in Numbers 25, with Phinehas, Cosby, and Zimri, and the spear goes through them there at the door of the tabernacle. We've talked about that before. But not only does Numbers 31 tell us that they're going to wage war, but it also shows us what Yahweh commanded concerning the spoils of war. Now let's go to Numbers 31, verse 25. See, the Israelites won the battle when they battled against Midian. And therefore, when they won the battle, they took what? Plunder or spools? What did Yahweh say to do with the spoils of war? Numbers 31, verse 25. It says, And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Take the sum of the prey or the spools that was taken, both of man and of beast, thou and Eleazar the priest, and the chief fathers of the congregation. So here Yahweh commands Moses to take the sum of the prey or the spoils of war, both of people and of animals. He's taking the sum, meaning adding it all up and seeing what all they brought in from the plunder. Verse 27. He says, and divide the prey into two parts. So they've got the plunder. He tells them to divide it into two parts. Picture this in your mind. Divide it this way. Between them that took the war upon them who went out to battle and between all the congregation. So they divide the plunder. Half of it goes to all the people that waged the war in Israel. The other half goes to all the congregation of Israel. So keep this in mind. Verse 28. And levy a tribute unto Yahweh of the men of war which went out to battle. One soul of 500, both of persons and of beeves, and of the donkeys and of the sheep, take it of their half and give it unto Eleazar the priest for a heave offering of Yahweh. So here the Israelites were to take or levy a tribute unto Yahweh, or in other words, be taxed on their spoils of war. Nothing is mentioned about a tithe. There's no universal tithe law here, but rather a tribute or a taxation. Of the warriors, their half, they were to take one out of every 500 persons or animals and give it to a Levite, Eleazar the priest, as a heave offering to Yahweh. One out of 500 comes to 0.2%. Not 10%, but 0.2%. Not even 1%, but 0.2. One out of every 500. And so they give that to Eleazar the priest as a heave offering out of these spools. Verse 30, And of the children of Israel's half, that is, now we've done satisfied ourselves here on the men of war, now we're going to go over to the congregation with the other half. Verse thirty. Thou shalt take one portion of fifty of the persons of the bees, of the donkeys, and of the flocks, of all manner of beast, and give them unto the Levites, which keep the charge of the tabernacle of Yahweh. And Moses and Eleazar the priests did as Yahweh commanded Moses. So here of the other half that went to the children of Israel, they were commanded to take one out of every fifty, possibly Bible really doesn't say it. Possibly because they had not participated in the war, they had to give a little more. But one out of every 50 is still a very far cry from a tenth. That's only a second or a 2%. And so here, Yahweh commands them how to give their spoils of war to the Levites. The men of war, 0.2%. The congregation of Israel, 2%. No tithe here. And if there was a universal tithe law on everything that you got or had given to you in your possession, then why didn't Yahweh apply it here? Well, it's simply because there is no universal tithe law on everything that you get. Not on spoils of war. Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils because he desired to give them to Melchizedek. And that was fine. You know, if I caught a good catch of fish, and Yahweh really blessed me, and I said, you know, Brother Arnold would really like some of these fish. I said, well, he tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give him a tenth of these fish. There will be absolutely nothing wrong with that. Did I have, did I have to give him, Brother Arnold? No, but it would be a blessing to him, and I could do it on my own free will and accord. That's exactly what Abram did. He tithed to Melchizedek, not of his wages or anything, but of spoils of war because he vowed or he wanted to do that for his victory. Yahweh's law shows that a tribute was levied for spoils of war that was either 0.2 or 2%, and that there definitely wasn't a universal tithe law. But what about Jacob's tithe, somebody says. Let's turn to Genesis 28. Did Jacob ever, ever tithe? Well, we know that Jacob promised to tithe in Genesis 28. We'll begin reading at verse 18. The Bible says, And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone, that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If Elohim will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall Yahweh be my Elohim And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be Elohim's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. And who's he talking to? Elohim, who is Yahweh. What's happening here? Well, we see from the get-go that Jacob's speech had a lot of ifs in it. And that's not to say that his speech should have had a lot of ifs in it, but it did. In other words, he said, Yahweh, if you do this, then I'm going to do this. But should we take everything that Jacob said To be conditional. You know Jacob said if you do this. Then you'll be my Elohim. But you know Yahweh really should have been. His Elohim. Even if he didn't do what Jacob said. Brother Arnold got part of a message tonight. About Job. You know Yahweh was Job's Elohim. Even when he took away. Job said Yahweh gave. And Yahweh took away. But blessed be his name anyway. He's still my Elohim. And I'm not going to curse him. So. Yahweh should have been Jacob's Elohim whether Yahweh did what Jacob wanted him to do or not. Now the idea about the stone, he said, I'm going to let this stone be, uh, be a pillar and it's going to be Elohim's house. That was most assuredly Jacob's idea. Then I can see that this would be maybe a condition, you know, like if Yahweh, if you do this, then I'll let this stone be a pillar. I can understand that from Jacob. But what about the tenth? Was the tenth conditional? Should Jacob have tenths or tithes anyway? even if Yahweh didn't do what he was going to do? Well, with all the evidence that we have to go on, we can conclude one of two things about the tenth here. Either number one, the giving of the tenth of all by Jacob was voluntary and not commanded. Jacob decided he would give a tenth to Yahweh. Or, this is the one I lean to, or it's possible that verse 22 is a reference to the land that Yahweh would give Jacob and his descendants. Now, you're going to say, well, I didn't read anything about land when we read that passage, Brother Matthew. But let's read just a few verses above where we read. Genesis 28, verse 10. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night, because the sun was set and took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set upon the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of Elohim ascended and descended on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh Elohim of Abraham thy father, and the Elohim of Isaac. Listen to this. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be at the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We'll stop right there. Now in verse 13, Yahweh says, The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And in verse 22, it says, Jacob says, And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give thee tenth to thee. And so one of two things is happening here. Either Jacob is voluntarily saying that he's going to give a tenth of all that Yahweh gives him, period which wasn't required under uh, the law of Moses, or Jacob's making a reference to the land that Yahweh promised to give him in his seed, which was commanded to be tithed on in Leviticus 27, where he said all the tithe of the land is holy to Yahweh. It's Yahweh's. And so either way, Jacob's vow here does not contradict anything that the Bible teaches. His giving of a tenth was either a reference to the future tithe law of the Levites, or to a personal vow given by him towards Almighty Yahweh. Both Abram's tithe and Jacob's tithe was definitely different than the tithe that was commanded by Yahweh in Numbers 18 or Leviticus 27. simply just was not the same. You know, the Levitical priesthood were the ones that received the tithes under the Old Covenant. This was compensation for their work at the tabernacle, and because they had no land inheritance amongst the children of Israel. We've seen the Bible's very clear on that. How does this apply to us today? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. We read verses 1 through 4 earlier in this message in Hebrews 7. But now we're going to read verses 4 through 10, and we're going to notice the following things from verses 4 through 10. Let's go there. Now consider how great this man was, speaking of Melchizedek, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils, And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. That is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Now I want you to notice this, that the sons of Levi are said to have a commandment according to the law to take tithes of their brethren. There's nothing stated about Melchizedek that he had a commandment according to the law or according to Yahweh to take tithes of Abram because there was none. Abram gave as he had purposed in his heart. Even though the Levites were descendants of Abraham's loins, we see the greatness of Melchizedek because Abraham tied to him. And we're going to see exactly what this greatness is here in a second. Verse 6, But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And so see, Melchizedek's descent is not counted from Levi, but yet he received tithes from Abram, and he blessed Abram that had the promises. Verse 7. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. What this means is that Melchizedek, who blessed Abraham, was better than the Levite priests. That's what this is saying. Continuing on, verse 8 and here men that die receive tithes. But there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. In the sense of, in the case of the tithe to Levi, they died. They received tithes, but when they got old, they died, and they couldn't receive tithes anymore. But of Melchizedek, it was witnessed that he liveth. Okay? That's showing his greatness over Levi. Verse 9, And as I may so say, Levi also, who received the tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So what they're saying is, in a sense, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was in Abraham's bosom or Abraham's loins. Abraham was their ancestor at a point in time. And so Levi, in a sense, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Once again, showing that it was Levi that paid tithes to Melchizedek, not Melchizedek that paid tithes to Levi and showing that Melchizedek was the better of the two priesthoods. Verse 11. For he was, excuse me, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek, and not be called after the order of Aaron? Now that's a rhetorical question. What he's saying here is that perfection was not by the Levitical priesthood. Because there arose another priest. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the Messiah. And he didn't arise after the order of Levi, but he arose after the order of Melchizedek. That's what he's saying. Verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Now this is not talking as some preachers would probably like to have it that now we don't have, don't tie to Levi, but now we tithe to Melchizedek. And guess what? Us preachers are the Melchizedek priesthood. That's what they say. There's no Bible for that. We'll get to that in a second. But they claim that they're the Melchizedek priesthood now. They've got to get all the 10%. They demand 10% from the followers. That's simply not in the Bible. It's not there. You won't find it. The, the change in the law that's spoken of here is there's a change in the priesthood. Why is there a change in the priesthood? Because another high priest rose after the order of Melchizedek. Why does there have to be a change in the law? Well, Because when you trace the Messiah's genealogy, he doesn't go back to Levi. He goes back to Judah. And so say, that's a necessary inference. There has to be a change in the law because this high priest is from Judah, not Levi. It's because the priesthood has been changed. There is a necessity of change also of the law. And so that law, or we could say the law, has been changed. Of course, we've talked about this before and people try to jump the gun into conclusions on this passage, but the context shows what law he's talking about here. Verse 14, for it is evident or obvious that our master sprang out of Judah of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. So Moses didn't speak that any priest was going to come out of Judah but the Messiah came out after the order of Melchizedek not by the law of a fleshly commandment but by the power of an endless or indestructible life according to the passage. Now I've dealt with the rest of this passage and other messages you can see me after the service if you'd like to get the the understanding of the rest of the passages or just go read it for yourself it's very easy to understand if you just take it verse by verse and don't try to add anything in it but going back to the New Testament ministers you see New Testament ministers are not said to be the sole Melchizedek priesthood to tithe to now that's simply not what the change in the law is let's turn to the book of First Peter chapter 2 we're going to be, begin reading at verse 5 and we're going to see who the, who the priesthood is today. It's not just the ministers. It's not just the preachers or the pastors or the elders. We're going to see who the priesthood is today. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. The Bible says, Ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Yahweh by Yahweh Shua the Messiah. Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him, who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of Yahweh, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter is writing to the elect according to the foreknowledge of Yahweh, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-2. through 2. He was speaking to all New Covenant believers that had the faith in the blood of the Messiah for the atonement for their sin. They were the holy priesthood. The chosen generation, the peculiar people. It wasn't just something that a preacher or a pastor or an elder obtained. As a matter of fact, there is only one priest other than Melchizedek himself that is after the order of Melchizedek. And that's the high priest that mediates at the right hand of the Father in the heavens in this day and time, pleading our case and our causes before the Father. That's the Messiah the very Son only begotten of Almighty Yahweh. He's the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not Matthew Jansen, not preachers today. Us as believers are a priesthood, but we're not after the order of Melchizedek. Not a preacher on this earth can say that he deserves to have tithes paid to him, demand it, because he's a Melchizedek priest. Because he's not. He's a preacher. That's great. That's fine. The Bible talks about preachers and pastors. I'm not against them at all. But he's not a Melchizedek priest. And he also has no right to demand a tithe or 10% of somebody's wages every week to to go to him. It's not to be done. We're not under the Levitical priesthood now. We're not under that priesthood anymore. That's what the Bible says. Therefore, any law that specifically was entwined with the Levitical priesthood has also been changed. Because there were laws for, for the priesthood that only the priesthood could do. We've been over this. What was a law that was applicable to the priesthood? It was one of, The tithing law was one of them. We're not under that law. That has been changed with the priesthood. That's what the Bible teaches. Now we are to instead now, under the new covenant, to give as Yahweh has prospered, us, not grudgingly nor of necessity, to one, true ministers of the good news, Two, the true ministry in general. And three, to the poor, the widows, indeed, the fatherless, etc. You know, the Apostle Paul had ample chance to try to teach that tithes now went to preachers. But you know, he never did that. Do you know what scripture Paul quoted when he was proving that ministers under the new covenant could receive material things from the people? He didn't say, for the law of Moses says, you have a commandment to take tithes. He didn't go to that scripture. He said, For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the grain. That's the scripture he went to. He could have went to the Numbers 18 tithe scripture, but he didn't. He went to Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 about the ox. And that scripture is true. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 through 18, Paul also went to Luke 10 and 7, where the Messiah said, Eat and drink such things as they offer, for a laborer is worthy of his hire. Did the Messiah take tithes? No, he did not. Matter of fact, he lived under the Old Covenant most of his life, and so he had no right to take tithes. He was from Judah, not Levi. Were there were there New Covenant believers tithing to the Levitical priesthood probably after the Messiah? I would say, yeah, up until 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed, but it was still given in accordance to the law to the tribe of Levi. Now, as far as the festivals are concerned, I believe that we should still save up for the festivals in order to supply ourselves with the proper food and drink that we need to have a blessed time. And when you think about it, this is exactly what Israel would have done for Passover and Pentecost because we covered that the tithe was only brought at Tabernacles. And so they had to have saved up to make the trip and to have a prosperous or blessed time at Passover and Pentecost. But things weren't available to tithe on until Tabernacles fully. So that's when they brought it to Jerusalem. And so we would do like they do. They did at Passover and Pentecost to just save up for the festival's and we should also give to the ministry, to the widows, indeed, but not it's not a tithe, it's not it's not a tithe, it's a giving. You know, in Revelation chapter twenty, verse twelve, I was this scripture came to my mind today as I was talking to Brother Arnold on the phone, we were talking about something else. But in Revelation chapter twenty, verse twelve, and myself and brother Randy's talked about this this past week, you know the Bible teaches that we will be judged by the things written in the books. The Bible said that the books were open and there's a specific people he has in mind there but we're all going to be judged by the things written in the books. He said the books were open and then another book was open which is the book of life. And they were judged by the things written in the books. You know if it's not written in the books you do not be judged by it. You'll be judged by what's written in the books. I was going to say he said look I told you that I, when I come back I was going to destroy everybody that ate swine's flesh. It's right there written in Isaiah 66:15 through 17. That's written. He's going to say, why, why, did, why didn't you do that? You ought to known that it wasn't done away with. I said, I was going to destroy you when I come back. We will not be judged by church history. We will not be judged by Jewish history. We will not be judged by tradition. We'll be judged by what's written in the books. He's going to open them up and he's going to say, look, did your life line up with this Bible? That's what you'll be judged by. And according to the Bible, there's nothing that teaches that we have to tithe to ministers today. Do we have to give to them? I believe we do. True ones. True ones. Don't believe you give to antinomians, ministers that don't teach obedience. The Bible says that if someone says that they know Yahweh and do not keep His commandments, that person is a liar and there is no truth in it. First John 2, 2 through 6, I believe. And so that will conclude the end of these messages Praise Yahweh. Let's all stand and close in a word of prayer before we take questions or comments and uh, leave this place. You know, I love everybody in here. I appreciate you for coming. I hope that you'll be back next week.